Well, I love this time of year for a lot of reasons, but one of them is the great songs we get to sing. I never get tired of singing these beautiful songs, and we'll gather together tomorrow afternoon and evening to do that again, our Christmas Eve uh, candlelight services at uh, uh, 3.30, at 3 and 4.30, and at uh, 6 o'clock. So you'll, you'll want to come and join us for those. Uh, it's great to see everybody here this morning. I want to wish all of you a Merry Christmas. Thank you so much for being here with us. If you're visiting with us, uh, we're especially glad you're here. We pray that our time uh, this morning and uh, tomorrow evening for Christmas Eve will enrich your celebration of Christmas this year. As uh, you celebrate Christmas this year, you might keep in mind some words uh, of one man I read this week. He said, Santa has the right idea. Visit people just once a year and you'll always be welcome. Uh, so you might keep that in mind this year. might be some good advice for some of us. Well, this morning is our third message in what's really a four-part Advent series. And uh, these uh, first three Sundays, we're focusing in Matthew chapter 1 and 2. Uh, next week, we'll be in a different passage. But if you'll turn in your Bibles with me to Matthew uh, chapter 2, that'll be our text for this morning. A couple weeks ago, we looked at the ancestry of the king. In uh, Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 17, we looked at the fact that Jesus is the royal son, that he, he comes from the kingly line of David, so he has the credentials to be the king or the Messiah. I mean, he's from the line of David. And last time we looked at Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25, the arrival of the king. We saw that Jesus is more than just a physical descendant of David. He's the virgin-born son of God. He's the divine king. And when Jesus was born there, he was deity in diapers, if you will, lying there in the manger. And this morning our message is from Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. We've titled this message, The Adoration of the King. So again, if you'll turn there in your Bible with me, uh, this is my favorite story of all of the Christmas stories, the story of the, the, the visit of the wise men or the magi. Let me read this for us. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, the old magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard it, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he began to inquire of them where the Christ was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it's been written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and ascertained from them the time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make careful search for the child. When you have found him, report to me that I too may come and worship him. And having heard the king, they went their way, and lo, the star which they'd seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And they came into the house and uh, saw the child with his mother Mary, and they fell down and worshipped him. And opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed for their own country by another way. May the Lord write his eternal word on our hearts this morning. One of the most famous stories recounted in English literature uh, concerns the essayist Charles Lamb. He was gathered together with some other of the great literary men of his day, and they began to imagine what they would do if the, the noble and gifted men of the past were to walk into the room. And they gave different answers. And finally, when it came the turn for Charles Lamb, he said this, 
If Shakespeare were to enter, we would rise to our feet in admiration. But if Jesus Christ were to enter, we would kneel in worship and in adoration. And Charles Lamb was dead right. The only proper response to the person and the presence of Jesus Christ is to fall on our knees and on our face in wonder and adoration. We don't rise in admiration to shake Jesus' hand. We fall down in adoration uh, to kiss his feet. And that's what we see in our text here this morning as the wise men come and they fall down at the feet of Jesus. But we all know that not everyone responds this way. Not everyone responded that way back when Jesus came. And certainly not everybody responds that way today. Now, it's interesting that we don't have anything here in Matthew 2 that really describes Jesus himself or really even describes his birth. What we have here is a focus on the reception that he received, the responses at his birth. Now, people loved it to focus on the details of this passage. You know, what was the star and who were the wise men and how many wise men were there and all of that. And we'll talk about those issues. But let's not forget the key focus in this passage this morning is how do people respond to Jesus? In fact, if you look at Matthew chapters 1 and 2, there are two main points of focus. The first one is Jesus fulfills Old Testament prophecy. Five times in Matthew 1 and 2, you'll have the statement that this took place in order that it might be fulfilled. Five times Jesus is tied to Old Testament prophecy as uh, the Jewish Messiah, as the king. But the second main point here in these two chapters is the responses to Jesus. How do people respond to him? Now, it's interesting here again in Matthew's gospel, more space is devoted to this story than anything else. Matthew must have loved this story of the coming of the Magi. Matthew never mentions the manger, the shepherds, the angels, the inn, none of that. Most of the space is given to the Magi. And the reason, again, is, I believe, because of their response. Matthew focuses on the responses to Jesus. And when Jesus first came, people immediately formed into three different groups, if you will, based on their response to him. We have Herod, we have Israel, and we have the wise men. So what we have here are the initial responses to Christmas, or the first responses. So these were what we might call the first responders uh, to Christmas. And interestingly, we see the same responses today, the very same responses to Jesus when he came the first time are the same responses we see to Christ and Christmas today. Now, we want to focus here this morning on the adoration of the king by these wise men, but to get the overall setting, I want to begin here in verse 1, and we find here the response of King Herod, the response of antagonism. Now, verse 1 starts, Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, So the story begins by telling us this is after he was born, but we don't know how long after. Um, Probably this is six months later, maybe up to a year after the birth of Jesus. Now, I think most of you know this. I hope you do. The wise men were not at the stable or at the cave uh, when Jesus was born that first night. They weren't there with the shepherds. Now, I know in most uh, programs, nativity programs we do. The wise men are there because, you know, you can't wait six months later and do it again. So they kind of do it all in, in one shot. Uh, but they weren't there that first night. And we know that for several reasons. One is if you look over in Matthew 2, 11, it says they came into the, child, the, the house and saw the child. 
The word that's used there is a different Greek word than the one that's used back in Luke's account, where Luke uses the word brephos, the idea of an infant. So he's, he's a little bit older now. The word is a different word that's used here. Also notice verse 11, they came into the house and saw where the child was. Mary and Joseph now are living in a house in Bethlehem. Also, we know that Herod killed all the baby boys two years and under, which indicates some interval of time. If it had just been a, a month or so, he would have killed the babies probably under one year of age. So some time has gone by, and to make sure he he's, has it far enough out where this baby's killed, he makes it at two years. But probably the strongest argument is over in Luke's gospel. In Luke chapter 2 and verse 24, Mary and Joseph have Jesus circumcised, and then they go to Jerusalem for Mary's purification and to dedicate Jesus. And the purification took place from a male child when a male child was born at 40 days. So about six weeks after Jesus is born, Mary and Joseph take Jesus and they go to Jerusalem. And when they go there for his dedication, they offer the sacrifice of poor people, uh, turtle doves and, and, and uh, the sacrifice of the poor. If Mary and Joseph had already received the Magi and had the gold and the frankincense and the myrrh, they would have given the best sacrifice and offering they could have given. They were devout uh, followers of Yahweh. So the fact that they give the sacrifice of the poor indicates the wise men haven't come at least six weeks out. So we know they came at least six weeks after Jesus was born, maybe even up to a year's time. Now the text said this happened in the days of Herod the king. Now Herod was the king, but Herod had no right to be the Jewish king. Herod was not a Jew. Um, his father was an, an Edomite. Um, his mother was, was an Arab. He did marry a Jewish wife to try to give him some kind of legitimacy, but he had no right uh, to the throne. Now, if you've ever been to Israel, you know that Herod was an architectural genius, architectural engineering genius. You see things all over the land of Israel still standing today built by Herod. But Herod had one fatal flaw. He was insanely paranoid, and it got worse the older he got. Um, he had his uh, brother-in-law drowned. Um, he had his wife, Mary Amney, killed. He had his mother-in-law killed. He had three of his sons killed, including his oldest son, Antipater, that he had killed five days before he died. And so Herod would do anything to protect his throne. He had his will changed over and over again near the end of his life. In fact, he was such a, a cruel man. Caesar Augustus said that it's better to be Herod's pig than to be his son. He actually used a play on a couple of Greek words. The word for pig is hus, and son is huios. It's better to be his sow than to be his son. Herod, uh, so that people would weep when he died, gave orders for some of the influential citizens of Jerusalem to be round up, rounded up and executed to make sure they would be mourning at his death. So Herod here is this man at this time, this imposter, this usurper, um, who's sitting on the throne. And then it says to us in verse 1, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying... Now the big question is, who are these Magi or these wise men? The only thing it tells us is that they're from the east. Now the word here in the Greek is a plural word. They're called the Magoi or the, the Magi. And we get our words magic or magician, obviously, from those words. But they were experts in astronomy and astrology and, and in all kinds of secret arts. Uh, they were a class of priests 
who also functioned as government officials. They were advisors to uh, the king, and actually they were the king makers. They held a dual priestly government office, and they composed the upper body, uh, the upper house of the council of the body that uh, made the absolute choice and election in that day of kings. So they were the king makers. They probably came from somewhere around Babylon. Uh, many scholars today believe they were Parthians. They came from the area of Parthia, which again is like in modern day uh, Iran, far to the east of Israel. We don't know for sure where they came from, but a lot of legends surround them. Now, we don't know how many of them there were. We have the song, We Three Kings, and that's the legend because they brought three gifts. But obviously, two men could have brought three gifts or five men could have brought three gifts. We, we don't know how many uh, there were. Um, there's, uh, history says there's three of them, and they, they named them Melchior and Balthazar and Gaspar. One was uh, young, one was middle-aged, and one was older. If you ever have a chance to go to, to Germany and you go to the city of Cologne, in Cologne there's a beautiful cathedral there. It's one of the most beautiful ones in the world. But inside there is the shrine of the three kings. And supposedly they have the bones of the three wise men there in this cathedral in, in uh, Cologne, Germany. Now, I don't know whose bones are in there, but it's not the wise men, but they think it is. But it's a beautiful triple sarcophagus, I mean, encased in gold. It's beautiful, the shrine of these three kings. But again, we don't know how many there were, but we do know they would have traveled with a large retinue of animals and soldiers and servants with them. There would have been a large contingent. Um, there were certainly dozens of people, maybe hundreds. Uh, one really respected Bible scholar I looked at this week said he believed there may have been a thousand people. Now, to me, that seems a little high, but certainly a large group came. And they come to Jerusalem because they know that the Jewish king has been born, and that would be the natural place for the king to be born. So they show up at Jerusalem, and they show up, and it, it says here that they were saying, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? And that word saying means they said it over and over again. So they're, they're going around the city asking people everywhere, where is the one who's been born of the king of the Jews? Now, why did these men come? How did they know about the birth of Jesus? Well, generally, they probably knew about this from the Jewish scripture. The Jews were deported to Babylon, you remember, for 70 years. And during that time, uh, while they were in deportation, the prophet Daniel was raised up by God. And Daniel prophesied about uh, the future of Israel. And in Daniel chapter 2, verse 48, there's a fascinating statement there. King Nebuchadnezzar made Daniel the chief of all the wise men in Babylon. So Daniel was, for, one, for some period of time, the chief of the Magi. And Daniel wrote extensively in the book of Daniel about a coming Messiah. He prophesied a great king who would rise in Israel and rule over a global kingdom. And so these magi knew the prophecies of Daniel, and they knew from Daniel chapter 9 that the time was being narrowed down for the coming of this king. So there was a great sense of expectation, and the magi wanted to be in on this. So generally, they knew about it from the Jewish scriptures. But specifically, uh, verse 2 tells us they knew about this because of a star. They saw his star in the east. Now, a star was associated in the Old Testament with the coming of the Messiah. 
Um, Balaam, who was a, a, a pagan Mesopotamian prophet, actually said this in, in Numbers 24, 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall arise from Israel. Now, who is it that holds a scepter? It's a king. Now, probably the star appeared to these wise men the night that Jesus was born. Now, if you know anything about, or if you've read anything about this star, you know there's all kinds of speculation about what it, what it is or what it was. Some say it was Halley's Comet in 12 B.C., some say it's a supernova. Other people say it's the conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn that happened in about 6 or 7 B.C. Uh, there's a, a, a video that's out there right now. I think it's on YouTube. I'm not sure where you can get it, but I've watched it at one time. That's got all kinds of detailed information, a whole new theory uh, about uh, the star. It's uh, all kinds of astronomy involved in it. It was too complicated for me to understand it, but... What I see here in this passage is this was no ordinary star because you'll notice it appears and then it vanishes. And I think it appeared to them in the east and I don't think it reappeared till they were on their way to Bethlehem. They didn't see it for, for months of time. So it appears, it vanishes, then it reappears, then it moves from north to south, from Jerusalem down to Bethlehem. Stars don't move from, from north to south because they stopped in Jerusalem to try to find out where he was born. So evidently the star didn't lead them the entire way. It appeared and it vanished and then it reappeared again. So I believe this was a supernatural light or shining. This was the Shekinah glory of God. The word Shekinah means to dwell or the presence, and it, it's a localized manifestation of the presence of God and brilliance and shining. And the word that's used here in Greek, the word star, is the word aster. We get the word asteroid from that and other words. That word could be used figuratively to represent any great uh, brilliance or any great radiance. So it could be used figuratively in that way. So I think this was the glory of God that appeared to them. We've already seen that in Luke chapter 2 and verse 9. When the angels are there, it says, The glory of God shone round about them. So the Shekinah glory of God appeared to the shepherds. And I think that same glory appeared to these wise men in the east. And you'll notice in verse 2, they say, We saw His star, His shining or His brilliance in the east. It's the same light that guided the Jewish people in the wilderness. So they've seen this star in the east and they go to the only place they know of where a Jewish can, this entire narrative is, that statement, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? We've seen his star in the east. and We've come uh, to worship him. And that's really the focus of this passage is worship. You find that word three times in these verses. So they're looking for the one that Daniel had spoken of. They're on a mission to identify this king. Uh, verse 3 says, And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Herod is, uh, is, is unsettled and disturbed and thrown into confusion. He's troubled, and I think he's terrified. Because Herod knows he's a usurper to the throne. He's not a Jew. He could never claim the legal throne of David. Herod was made king by the Romans. Notice they say, where is the one who has been born the king of the Jews? 
Now it says all Jerusalem was troubled with him because I think the people who had learned that when Herod got upset, other people suffered. So when Herod gets upset, everybody gets upset. And so uh, confusion and his, his terror because they were kind of the other rival empire in the east to the Romans in the west. And Israel was kind of this buffer state in between. And Herod had battled with the Parthians in the past. And so if it's this big contingent of Parthians that come there, it would have added to his fear of what was going on. Herod at this point is aging, and he's becoming even more and more paranoid about his throne. And then in verse 4, he says, He gathered together all the, the chief priests and So he wants to know when the child was born. And of course, the interest in this is he wants to do away with him, but he doesn't openly hesitation. And they say to him, in, in uh, Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written, or literally, for it stands written. And I love this. They say it stands written, came through him. He was the instrument of it. But the words that he wrote were the very words of God himself. And then they say in Bethlehem, the land of Judea, and they go on and quote this passage. This is, this is tragic yet powerful. Matthew puts the fulfillment of prophecy on the very lips of those the same body of men who 33 years later will say, crucify him, crucify him. We will not have this man to be king over us. And here they are on their very lips is a statement of the fulfillment of this prophecy by Jesus. So, so Herod knows where the Messiah is to be born, but he wants to know where, when he was born as well. So notice he ascertained from them in verse 7, and that word means to ascertain precisely the time that the star appeared. And then finally, he feigns this idea of wanting to worship him. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and make careful search for the child. When you found him, report to me that I can worship him. Of course, we see the, the hypocrisy of Herod. So the response of Herod to Christ is antagonism and rejection because Herod is only interested in his own throne. The only thing he's interested in is staying in power and keeping control. And he would go to any lengths whatsoever to maintain uh, his own control. And it's the same thing today. More and more people today are openly rejecting Christ and even are antagonistic to Him. And the reason ultimately is they're only interested in their throne. They want to maintain control over their own life. So Christmas is still a threat today to people who want to stay on the throne of their life, who insist on ruling their own life. God come in human flesh as a threat to them because he demands submission and surrender of their lives. Remember years ago hearing someone say, before you can pray thy kingdom come, you have to pray my kingdom go. And Herod wasn't willing to say my kingdom go. Herod, like many people today, was more interested in saving his throne than he was in saving his soul. Herod responds with antagonism. But the second response, and we'll look at this quickly, is the response of Israel, the response of apathy. In verses 4 through 6, now you'll notice here Matthew continues to drive home this message that Jesus is the king because he quotes Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, which shows that Jesus the king is born in David's city. So it's another affirmation that Jesus is the promised covenanted Messiah of Israel. But again, the tragedy of this is these Jewish leaders knew all the answers, but they're filled with cold, shallow indifference to the person of Jesus. 
These are the most knowledgeable religious people of the day. And they wouldn't travel five miles from Jerusalem to Bethlehem just to even check this out to see if it was true. I mean, a 90-minute walk one way, and they wouldn't even go to see if it was true. I mean, this is a tragic, pitiful scene. Their Messiah, God in human flesh, has come, and they totally missed it. It wouldn't even take a short walk down there, even just to, to check it out, just perchance if it were true. John 1.11 says, He came to His own, and those who were His own did not receive Him. Christ is rejected by His own. They're so caught up in their own affairs and their own lives that Jesus meant nothing to them. And sadly, many, many people are like that today. There's a lot of people that know the Scriptures, but they really don't have that much interest in the Savior. They're so indifferent and, and so absorbed in their own affairs of life that they really don't make any effort to find Jesus. There's no real interest in Him. They're interested in their religion, but they're not interested in Jesus. They may love religion and love talking about Jesus, but they really don't care about Him. And Christ and Christmas re mean really little or nothing to them. And the tragedy is you can be sitting here today and have that same attitude. Right where you sit this morning, you can hear what I'm saying and what we're talking about about Jesus, and you can fail to respond to Him and to receive Him. I pray that that doesn't reflect the heart of any of us here this morning. No real heart and love for Jesus Christ. Too distracted and too caught up in our own interests to really have a true love for Him. I'm surprised how many people I, I meet that know about religion and they know about Jesus and they know some things about the Bible and they may even like to talk about Jesus and religious and spiritual things. But there's not a real heart and a real love and a real passion for Jesus Christ. And that's what we see in uh, these leaders in Israel. So the response of Herod, antagonism, rejecting Christ. The response of Israel is apathy and neglecting Christ. But the third response is the response of the wise men, and their response is adoration. And they stand in stark contrast to the first two responses. They accept and adore Him. And that's the response, obviously, we want to emulate. And notice verse 9. And having heard the king, they went their way, and lo, the star which they had seen in the east went on before them. And it came and stood over where the child was. And when they saw the star, they hadn't seen it in months. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. This shining, this glory of God comes and stands over of the house in Bethlehem where Jesus is, just as it had stood over the tabernacle in the wilderness, signifying the presence of God. And I think only the eyes of the Magi were open to see it. I don't think everyone else could see it. They were given a, a revelation of God to see where uh, the Messiah was born. And then I love verse 11, they came into the house. Now think about this, Mary and Joseph knew who Jesus was. Uh, we know from uh, Matthew chapter 1 that um, an angel had appeared to Joseph in a dream. We know from uh, chapter 2 of Luke's gospel that Mary knew who Jesus was. But I still think as he grew up and they saw these different things happening, it had to be a shock to them. Again, these are dozens, maybe hundreds of people that show up there in Bethlehem. And these, these kingmakers from the area of Parthia or Babylon, they come in 
the house and it says, when they saw the child with Mary, his mother, they fell down and they worshiped him. And literally you could translate this, having fallen down, they prostrated themselves before him. So they fell down and then they prostrated themselves or laid out on their faces before him. Now, Mary and Joseph know who Jesus is, but I think this still had to be an incredible, stunning scene for them. Here these men are, these kingmakers, and they're there before him, prostrating themselves uh, before the Lord Jesus. There's no hesitation. They fall down there, and they fall down before a baby. Some of you may have been uh, to Copenhagen in Denmark. I've never been there, but in the, the cathedral there, there's a famous statue of Jesus. It's 11 feet tall. It was uh, uh, carved by Bertel Thorvaldsen. And uh, when you go in there, you, you can't really see the face of Jesus till you get up close, very close. He, he's standing there, and if you, you look at a picture of it, his, his face is, is down. And, and there's a story about a missionary who went there to visit this, uh, to see this statue. And as he was walking up towards it, a young Danish man came up to him and whispered this in his ear. He said, sir, you'll not be able to see the Savior's eyes until you come near and kneel at his feet. You can't really see Christ until you surrender to him. Those who stand far off surveying him never really see his face. So bend the knee, be conquered by him, surrender yourself. When he did that, he was able then to look into the face of Jesus. That's what the Magi did. They were conquered by him. They came and surrendered themselves to a small Jewish baby living in a humble house there in Bethlehem. One of my favorite quotes, uh, really, that I've read in a lot of years is by a man named P.T. Forsyth. He was a great Scottish theologian, died about 100 years ago. But he made this statement. He said, the world finds its meaning, not in finding itself, but in finding its master. Not in coming to its true self, but in meeting its Lord and Savior. Not in overcoming, but in being overcome. I love those words because he says, look, the world finds its meaning. And you could bring that down and you could say an individual, a human being. We find our meaning not in finding ourselves, but in finding our master. There's so many people out there in the world today who are trying to find meaning in life by finding themselves. Or you hear people say, well, you know, I'm trying to, to find meaning in life. I'm trying to find freedom. The Bible tells us that we don't find meaning in life by finding ourselves or by finding our freedom. We find the ultimate meaning in life by finding our master. Or as Forsyth says it here, in meeting our true Lord and Savior. People think today that the true meaning of life is finding themselves and finding their freedom. And what they end up finding is they become slaves. The only people who are really free and know the meaning of life are those who found their master, who've met him, who found the Lord Jesus Christ. True meaning in life is not found in overcoming, he says, but by being overcome. And that's the story of the wise men. They were overcome. They were overwhelmed. They found their master. And in finding their master, they found uh, the consummation of life and what life is really all about. We overcome not by overcoming, but by being overcome. And I pray that you found that. Maybe some of you here this morning, maybe some younger people thinking, man, I need to, to find myself in life and, and find freedom. Finding freedom in, in yourself is only going to lead to slavery. You only find freedom when you find your master. That's the only way you can find life, and they found it. 
So these magi accept and adore Christ. And, and again, the tragic, the tragic uh, contrast here is the Jewish leaders won't come five miles to see Jesus. But these Gentiles travel 800 miles and believe in him and put their trust in him and worship him. In many ways, this story is a microcosm of the rest of Matthew's gospel as you go along. This sets the stage for the rest of the gospel of Matthew. What do you see in Matthew's gospel as you read through it? An escalating rejection and hatred of Jesus that culminates in his crucifixion. Jews reject him through the book, but Gentiles accept him and receive him. So in many ways, this story here at the beginning sets the stage for what the rest of this gospel will be about. What we see here are three responses to Christmas, to Christ. You can reject him as Herod did. You can neglect him as the Jewish leaders did. You can accept him as the wise men did. But really, you could boil that down even further, and you can say there's really just two responses to Jesus. Rejecting him and neglecting him, really you could, you could put together into one, and that is to reject Christ. And the other response is to accept him. And this year, I want to make sure that every one of us here have personally accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior. There's no third response. It's either rejection or acceptance. What does John 1.11 say? He came unto his own. Those were who his own did not receive him. But what's the next verse say? But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe on his name. Those who, are, who believe in Jesus Christ become his children through faith by trusting in him. So I pray if you've never done that, that here in a moment as we pray, uh, that you'll take Jesus Christ and trust in him to be your savior. Uh, the Bible says, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord uh, will be saved. And for those of us who've already accepted him, let's make sure that our acceptance of Christ produces within, within us a heart of worship and adoration for him. The only proper response to Christmas is worship. Christmas isn't about trinkets and, and toys and, and tinsel and trees. Christmas is about Jesus Christ, and it's about worship of him. We see here in, in, in this passage that true worship of Jesus demands humility. Having fallen down, they prostrated themselves before him. We also see that true worship is costly and it's extravagant. They bring gold and frankincense and myrrh. And many have seen in this gold a picture of Christ's royalty. Frankincense, which was an incense offered to gods, is a, a picture of Christ's deity. And myrrh, that was a, a burial spice, speaks of the humanity and the death of Jesus. But what we see here is these were costly gifts, that, that true worship is costly. It costs us something. We must open our treasures to Him and give Jesus Christ all that we are and all that we have. Uh, Chuck Swindoll, in one of his older books, is, it's a book, uh, Growing Deep in the Christian Life, he tells the story about a large department store one year that carried a special doll at Christmas, and it was a doll in the form of the baby Jesus. It was advertised as being unbreakable and washable and cuddly, and it was packaged in straw with a, in a satin crib and had all the uh, plastic surroundings and even had appropriate biblical text added to it uh, to make the scene complete. Now, the problem is, though, these dolls didn't sell very well. 
So the manager of one of these uh, department store, uh, one of these stores in this chain uh, panicked about this, and he carried out a last-ditch effort to get rid of these dolls. So he brandished a large sign outside the store, and it said this, Jesus Christ, mark down 50%. Get him while you can. Now, Jesus Christ is the king. He is the son of God, and he didn't come to be packaged for half price, where if you hurry, you can get him. He came to be worshipped as God. Yet every year at Christmas and throughout the year, many, many people discount Jesus Christ. But look, you can't have Jesus on the cheap. You have to take him for who he is and receive everything or receive nothing. And the wise men knew that. And I pray that you and I will know it too. The message I want you to leave with this morning from this passage is a very simple message. Christmas is for humble, extravagant worship and adoration of the King. That's what Christmas is about. It's what it's about for us individually. It's what it's about for our families. It's what it's about for us uh, together as a church family. So I hope you'll practice that in your own life. I hope you'll practice that as your family gathers together. It will be a time of humble, extravagant worship and adoration of our great King. Oh, come, let us adore Him. Let's pray together. There's an old song I love. One of the lines from it says this, Savior, at Thy feet I fall, my Lord, my life, my hope, my all. For I have nowhere else to flee, no sanctuary, Lord, but Thee. Oh, Father, we come, and in this passage this morning, we see that Christmas demands a response, that the King has come. Father, I pray that the response of every one of us here this morning in our heart is to fall at the feet of our Savior and to realize we have nowhere else to flee. We have no sanctuary but Thee. We thank You that God has come in human flesh to be our Savior, to die for our sins, to rise again from the dead. And Father, I thank you for every one of us here who know the Lord Jesus today, that we found out what life's all about because we've met our master. We overcome by being overcome and overwhelmed by him and his goodness and his grace to us. Fathers, we gather together as families uh, tonight and tomorrow and in the coming days. I pray, Father, that while we have a great time of celebration and enjoyment together, We'll pause and take time to come in humble, extravagant adoration and worship of our King. He alone is worthy. May His name be praised forever. Amen.